Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. It's Tuesday, April 16th. My name is Michael Gordon, and you're listening to Blog Talk Radio. This is The Mind Whisperer. And we have a very special guest today on the program. I'm very excited. Uh, Just a a moment, we're going to be speaking with my friend uh, David Meyer, who is an author and a cinema studies professor at the New School. And I'm very excited about this conversation. David and I have been in a kind of an ongoing dialogue the last few years on on this topic um, and its broader implications. Uh, But just welcome to the program to begin with. Um, If you are listening uh, to the archive program, appreciate you um, checking into the show. And all our episodes are available on podcast, on Blog Talk Radio, and they're also available for download on iTunes. We have a Facebook page for the Mind Whisperer, and uh, also we're on Twitter. So have a look on, on the Blog Talk Radio forward slash the Mind Whisperer home page and you'll find all of those links really appreciate your support um we're coming up on uh 3500 listens so far in the show show in just a short period of time and um i I just received a mail email last night uh from a fan in washington dc area who says uh she's listened to all of the episodes which is phenomenal and uh is very into the program and uh is you know, uh, telling all of her friends and says that, you know, I'm developing a following there. So for anyone out there listening, wherever region you are of uh, the continent or the world, I'm very excited to have you uh, part of the show. You can call in any time to the program with any topic, any concern, any question, regardless of what we're talking about. Um, today, you know, you're, you're welcome to drop in and uh, either on the chat forum or by calling in and you can uh, join our conversation. And... Um, also, um, as I mentioned, you know, the fans in the D.C. area, um, I'm really excited about opportunities to travel, do the podcast live in your area, and also to come and uh, do a, a forum discussion or even a, 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 a public talk on any of these issues that you find relevant, and whether it's for your uh, office or your community or your spiritual community or, um, you know, organizations at large. All right, well, without further ado... I'm going to introduce our guest today, as I said. Um very excited and honored to have my friend, uh, David Meyer, uh, who is author of a um, really uh, exhaustive and a very insightful biography on the late uh, Graham Parsons, um, who is a pivotal figure in Americana music, as it's now being referenced, and um, you might know it as country rock music. Um, he's essentially credited with launching Emmy Lou Harrison's career and they had a very torrid romance and you know she's very publicly spoken and, and written about uh, the, the lasting effects of the of, of Graham's death and Graham died very young. David was he uh was he a member of the twenty seven club? Yes, he was a member of the twenty seven yes. club and thank you for having me. So yes um, I'll bring you on in just a second. I just want to check that fact. So the 27 Club is an unfortunate term for uh, many of the great artists who died prematurely, and it's quite a, an, um, an odd coincidence of uh, the same 
age of 27 years old, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, uh, Robert Johnson, Kurt Cobain, many, many artists have died at that age, Jimi Hendrix. Um, so without further ado, uh, welcome to the program, David. Thank you very much. Uh, the, the, just for folks to know, the title of your first book, and make sure I have this correctly, is called uh, 20,000 Roads, The Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music. Yes, that's right? right. That's right. Okay, and that, that's out on Random House? Yes, that's Random House. Okay. Paperback um, and hardcover. Paperback and hardcover. There are there are a number of biographies out on Graham Parsons. Uh, I won't go too much into his story. I'll, you know, I'll leave it to you, David, to, to fill in the blanks there, but... Um, yeah, uh, it's it, this book is uh, stands above the crowd in terms of um, how detailed and, and insightful it is about Graham's, particularly his early life and um, and reflections on um, how it shaped his career. Graham was also uh, founding member of the Birds and then the Flying Burrito Brothers, and um, and a, a, and really quite an a felt but in some ways invisible influence on the Rolling Stones. A lot of people credit the song Wild Horses, for example, to be his influence on Keith. Richards as they were hanging out um, quite extensively. But Graham was also a very tragic figure. I want to get into this right away. Um, Dave is so knowledgeable about about Graham's early life and his upbringing. It's, it, David, it's almost like a, a you know the classic American Southern Gothic you know tragic novel, like a Faulkner-esque or uh, Tennessee Williams you know kind of backstory. Um, can you speak a bit about about Graham? You know, I've given the basic bio on him, but um, what did you learn? writing that book that that you know may have been missed about his story or you know or for you personally at least well i think that the main thing that was missed about his story was that um you know he was a he was a drug addict and an alcoholic and he was particularly addicted to depressants you know uh, liquor heroin barbiturates and mm-hmm. most of the people who who do their art in spite of those um, hindrances seldom address the self in their art but Graham's work like all the best uh, of tragic country music was about unflinchingly describing his own self-loathing and the deficiencies he found within his own personality so there's mm-hmm. this extraordinary combination of a certain level of denial that accompanies addiction and a refutation of that denial in the midst of the addiction you know, and, and uh, yeah, one, just, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say one of his greatest songs is called How Much I Lied. And it's a song telling, you know, a, a prospective lover to run away from him because all all he ever does is lie. And, you know, the addict's trap is always living in constant lying, but very seldom do you find that expressed in, in the addict's art. And it's one of the things that makes his art so heartbreaking and profound, I think. Yeah, and one of the things that we, you know, in any art form, I always think of uh, stand-up comics. You know, they're ex- ex- exceedingly tragic, and a lot of people don't realize how how much depth there is to, um, you know, our best stand-up comics and how serious they are as individuals and um, as funny as they are, you know, they they, um, they struggle. And, uh, you know, in this program we talk a lot about the interplay between um, our experiences, particularly the experiences that shape us in a traumatic way early in life, and uh, that shape us later on in our in our uh, skills or lack of skills, you know, with relationships or, as you say, controlling addiction. And I'm o- I'm always fascinated by this window into individuals where 
they're trying to manage damage done that was early on and that shaped them and, and is in the larger writ story of their of their uh, the backdrop of their life. Like you know, Graham's family was um, extremely wealthy. There was a lot of instability. There was uh, alcoholism and was it, there was suicide there too. Yes, Graham's family was very interesting. On on one side they were rich white trash, and on the other side they were sort of pure Southern gentility. And his father was an alcoholic, and um, I think was, his health was severely damaged by malaria in World War II. And then when Graham was, was a child, his father killed himself. And I think that that w- was an unhealable wound, as it were, for Graham. He was very yeah. close to his father, and he, he went out from under his father's influence, so to speak, and entirely under the influence of his mother's family, all of whom were alcoholics. And I think that that marked his path early on, the combination of this tragedy, the notion that there was some sort of external remedy for pain, and the um, you know material ability to buy anything he wanted to suppress his pain. Interesting. Yeah, and one thing I want to you know get to without um, tipping off too early, but we're going to talk about uh, your new book coming up uh, on the Bee Gees. But there's a really interesting... Um, connection here about the fragility of an artist in terms of their psyche and their artistic process and, and of course, their, you know, their, their own life, um, as you described with Graham. And, you know, you mentioned that there's a, a self-expressive, self-referential, what we call confessional kind of songwriter approach with Graham that shows a great vulnerability. But it also, you know, again, on the program, we talk a lot about the interaction between compassion and vulnerability. And right. until you really engage your own suffering, you're not able to really um, genuinely um, exude empathy and compassion. So I think of Graham's other material, like a song like She, you know, which is just such a, one of my favorite songs of his, um, you know, that's, that's and he, and this is just something we talked about before as well, that he grew up with, um, with, uh, with uh, black servants in the family that he was very close right. with. Right. A classic, classic Southern American upbringing. Yeah, way. but there was a bond, there was a sort of a surrogate bonding there that you know um, that's also reflecting his uh, grasping with race issues and not only on a personal level within his own family and trying to find some surrogate you know attachment there, um, but also to be able to voice that in such a profound way in that song, um, speaking to the American you know African American experience post slavery. Um, so that interplay between fragility and and you know the, the tragic sort of unfolding of your own voice in your work, and then empathy. Yeah, it's it's strange because um, I think the 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 more reflect reflexive position is to regard addicts as almost wholly narcissistic, mm-hmm. and yet and yet Graham saw others with a kind of frightening clarity that when he could, he could apply to himself as well. And I think this is one of the things that drew him and, and Keith so close together is that they had a capacity um, to perceive, even through the fog of what they took to blunt their emotions. Yeah, and it, you know, I read uh, Keith's uh, book Life, and um, I was really pleasantly surprised. Um, you know how sincere he comes across and how thoughtful he is and very intelligent. And um, I think that, you know, this brings up a point 
perhaps in common between and Graham and Keith and why they forged such a strong relationship. Um, you know, in that book, you know, Keith really comes across as being a real dedicated uh, musician right from the beginning. I mean, he says that, they're, you know, early on, they had nothing, you know, and they were really just trying to be a good, a good blues band. And even through, you know, the tour in 72, you know, the, the, the much uh, written about, you know, uh, debauchery of that, of that tour, and all the women that were coming and going in the groupies, you know, he said oftentimes he just wanted company. You know, women would call call up or show up at the at the show or the hotel, and they would just take care of them. And again, there's something very almost innocent like, and you've mentioned this before in previous conversations about Graham, um, but I'm really fascinated about this po- poking through what, like you say, maybe we're very reflexive approach to say that they're narcissistic because you said Graham always looked for an opportunity to be on. Right. Like he was almost pathologically, which is really an interesting contradiction for someone who's so broken to be so compulsively driven to be performing. Well, you know, the the performing urge is really fascinating when you see it uh, kind of in its uncut state. You know, if if you're interviewing with or in a social setting with actors or singers or people who are genuinely driven to perform and you just see how how at ease they are with assuming that persona and and stepping into that persona and insisting on the primacy of it in that social setting you know that that some performers are intensely shy when they're not on stage and other performers always need to be performing in some way and, you know you, you know, uh, and again reflexively you, you assume it's some kind of escape from something well, the inability to sort of, of be the, quiet with the self. Absolutely. Did you read any of the uh, interviews with Bruce Springsteen? That the you know twenty thousand word you know interview with him, and I believe it was the um, the New Yorker. Yeah, I read that whole piece. Yeah. So he talks about that. He talks about he discloses you know that he had struggles with his mental health and that being on stage for three hours was an escape from himself, from the urge to destroy himself. Well, you know this whole question we've touched on a lot in our private conversations this whole issue of the observer self you know the aspect of self that's always watching one live life and and how to escape that observer self or or how to come to terms with it you know when it's oppressive when it's censorious when just awareness itself is too much and i think mm-hmm. with a performer like graham this idea of the observer self you know, was a profound hindrance. You know, for All right, me. So, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, for me personally, the the things I've found that enable me to transcend the observer self are the things that, in many ways, make life worth living. You know, the 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 losing oneself in creativity, or sports that involve velocity, like skiing or bicycling, moments where you get so focused that you stop observing what you're doing. And I think for, for Graham, this was an enormous curse, and that, that both performing and drugs let him escape that observer self. Well, it's like an interview that was, you know, several years ago, Mickey Rooney gave in, in uh, the CBC up here in Canada, and he sort of silenced the interviewer because he was asking about his early life, and he said, yeah, I was acting from a young age. And he goes, but, you know, all of us were, were putting on little skits for our parents, et cetera, and he says, you know, when do we stop doing that? Right, and so Michael Enright, the, the interviewer, said, uh, he, "You know, just got flummoxed by the question. There was some dead air." And after a while, Mickey, you know, relieved him <laughs> and said, "We we stop doing it when we notice other people are watching." 
Oh, that's very interesting. That's and really so interesting. That, that moment of self-consciousness is, is what kills that, as you said, that authentic primacy of just being in the moment. Right, especially if you... I mean, this is just right off the top of my head, but especially if you extend that idea of the person watching to being in some way a parent who disapproves. Absolutely. Then, so my then, point, then you get my locked point into that it. notion of the disapproving parent always watching. Exactly, which is where I think the curse is for someone like Graham, and we're, in, in just a second we're going to talk about Barry Gibb, um, but that the parent doesn't necessarily have to be the parent, the apparent parent. <laughs> it can right. be the internalized right. parent. Right. Okay, so by contrast, let's let's talk about your upcoming book. You've got a book coming out uh, uh, in July. An, uh, in July, it's yep. it's essentially an unauthorized biography of the BGS. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a little reluctant to say unauthorized because that makes it sound like I have some, you know, agenda for dirt from the jump. It's just that the BGS and Barry Gibb especially won't ever talk to the press. So uh, there, it's my book is called the BGS. The biography, and it's a product of two years of um, research and interviews, and mm-hmm. it's the first really detailed, definitive biography of their life in music. But it is essentially a, a, almost an investigative journalist piece. I mean, you told me off off air that um, that you know that no one's been able to go on the record because of this cloak of yeah. silence from the BGC. Yeah, this, um, and also. None of their other books have really explored the the family dynamics within the band, which are just they're just absolutely fascinating. All right, because, so let's get into that. And I, and okay. I just want to set this up. Uh, sorry to, to rush you, but you know, I'm just concerned about time. And I, I just no, want no, to set please. this up for the listen for the listeners as we were doing our pre-interview. Um, y- you very uh, succinctly drew out this this uh, contrast between Barry and Graham. And what you mentioned is that um, the Gibbs uh, also grew up. Um, with uh, some early childhood uh, trauma, and you said essentially Barry became the the alpha in the family, the the the, uh, the parent figure. Um, but this this wonderful juxtaposition that you have between Graham being um, um, somebody who was so tortured in a way uh, by his by his his upbringing and his uh, need to you know kind of uh, um, redeem himself in a way or explore his own fragility and so he had that tremendous self insight or that compulsion to to express himself but at the same time he was enormously blocked as an artist right. and by contrast you say Barry Gibb um, had no problem he was the most productive member of, of the Bee Gees and, and just an endless flow of, of creative output um, but really no in, intensive self insight so can you speak to that contrast it's fascinating sure. it, it, it's really fascinating you know when you when you talk about you know, children of addicts. One of the first things that always comes up is that the children of addicts are robbed of their childhood because the addicts start imposing parental roles on the children very early on in their development and because the addicts refuse to assume an adult persona themselves. And it wasn't so much that the, the Gibbs father wasn't was an addict, it's just he was never very successful. And the, the children were successful child performers and he became their manager. But they always determined what they did, and Barry took on essentially a paternal role and the president of a business role when he was like 15 years old. So he never really experienced a childhood, and his his two younger brothers are fraternal twins, and they always had to do what Barry said, basically. 
And as, of course, as they grew older and the band got successful, they rebelled against being trapped in this adolescent role when, by the time they were young adults. And there was a spectacular breakup. But the three of them discovered in the course of the breakup that they could not do their best work without the other two. You know, it's, it's kind of a fantastic analogy for, the, for all family dynamics. And so Absolutely. here you have three brothers who stayed together doing creative work for 40 years. You know, and if it's, if it's axiomatic that m- members of a band can't stand each other after a certain point, and if it's axiomatic that everybody's family gets on everybody's nerves at different times, how in the world did they stay together for 40 years? How did they work together and bear one another for 40 years? And, and I think mm-hmm. part of the way is that they had an absolute father figure. You know, they had the, the classic uh, paternal figure of Barry. And that Barry was always, had more drive, more energy, put out more music, was more determined, and had less issue with addic- addictive substances, fewer issues, than his two brothers. And so what was true when they were 13 was true when they were 50. Fascinating. So yeah, it's an amazing story. A little bit of- Maybe you could speak a little bit. I don't know if you focused on this in the book because I haven't had a chance to read it, but and, I, and, I, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, the relationship to that internal process of the dynamics as a, as a family, then as an entity that is an artist voice, essentially. Even though they had unique voices within the band, they presented themselves as a, as a collective. And in, you said the figure was 250 million records they sold? Yeah, 250 million records. Okay, that's an enormous uh, uh, yeah. reach. It's and so it sets up this it sets up this insane <laughs> dynamic between the personal, you know, private uh, artistic process, and then becoming this juggernaut pop phenomenon. Um, and so, did, did you explore that at all? In the, in the well, see, not, the, yeah, you've touched on something really fascinating here, on, on a, a really interesting issue, because Graham, though of course he wanted success, first wanted to express his own views personally, and all his music was about himself and his emotions. Barry and his other brothers always regarded themselves as pop writers, and and from their earliest quotes onward, they're always saying things like, this is not about my emotions. This is a, a piece of pop work. And of course, it's not true. You know, all their work is one way or another about their emotions. But on the one hand, Graham would sing a song that would say, you know, this is how much I've lied. You know, stay away from me. Whereas the Bee Gees always cloak their emotion in, in vague statements. They never directly say, I love you, I miss you, I feel bad today. They're, they're always using some kind of poetic metaphors. Their lyrics are almost impossible to parse literally. And, and it's only when you start learning about the context of the various songs. I mean, a song like Massachusetts, right? Mm-hmm. One of their huge hits. I have no idea what that song is about. And I don't think they know <laughs> what it's about. And and one yeah. of the most interesting things about their great music is that m- their most moving songs, I think, move one in the absence of rational meaning. That they move one in the purely ineffable way that music, melody, harmony stirs one. And, and that they had a gift for... Um, writing words in a poetic way that evoke very powerful emotions without ever directly naming 
the source or aspect of those emotions. Well, this is really interesting, and you and and, and I'm fascinated. You know, we don't have a lot of time left, but I'm fascinated okay. by your insight as a, as a as a teacher of of um, you know film theory and cinema studies. You know how that how that um, gives you a, a particular insight into that aspect of of the expression of the work. But there's there's a very interesting again contrast. You know, the Bee Gees, where they come from, um, the pop culture of England. There's kind of a fascinating dialectic there that emerges as this pop expression uh, that's almost minimalist. It's like the best country music. And then you have Graham, and he's also expressing a dialectic, but it comes out of country roots. It comes out of, you know, southern poverty and, and the disparity of wealth and and the personal expression of, of blues and, and roots music. So maybe you can speak about those influences. And well, you how know, they... it, it's really funny because, you know, Graham was a, a rich, very well-educated um, sophisticated, worldly kid, and the Bee Gees came from abject poverty. You know, they were they were playing on the streets and scrabbling in the gutters for pennies when they were in junior high school. You know, they left school like seventh grade to just go and write and sing. Graham got as far as one semester at Harvard before he dropped out. But gr- what what Graham identified with was the American roots music that was about emotional pain, you know, old school country music, classic country music. And the Bee Gees were always looking at pop success. And yet, you know, they and, both... And, did, I mean, of, and also, also in kind of a working class way, because they had to succeed. <laughs> that's you know, right. Didn't. That's right. Their, their model could never be, oh, I want to go live in a, you know, in a garret and live off sardines and express myself. Because from the time they were 13, they wanted a bigger audience and more money. You know, they they did, almost didn't have time to develop self-expression. They had to eat. Whereas, you know, Graham had plenty of time to experience all his emotional pain because he never had to work. And, and that's part of the, the interesting dialectic between the two of them, also. So, what surprised you about writing this book about the Bee Gees? That you that you um, I mean, you kind of, it sounds like you went in with a particular uh, um, you know, question around the dynamics of the family wanting to, to draw that out. But is, is there anything that surprised you? Yeah, I think the two biggest surprises are, first of all, how, like, no, I think no matter where you are in the world, you could stop somebody and ask them to hum a Bee Gees song, and they could. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody knows the Bee Gees. And people might kind of smirk or laugh a little bit when you say the word Bee Gees, and there are a lot of ridiculous images that come to mind. But everybody knows and remembers the Bee Gees song. It's, they're really in the ether. It's, it's amazing. And then the other thing that surprised me is just how interesting they were as individual human beings and how how powerful the family dynamic was. And the other thing is, you know, they made some great songs. I mean, you listen oh, to Jive yeah. Talking. Jive Talking is a truly amazing pop construction. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's it's fodder for another conversation. But again, I'm fascinated from the reverse of the telescope. You know, from from instead of looking outward from the band to this vast public, you know, right. uh, fan base, looking back in, and people want to find the personal insight through these universal pop songs that they've connected to, and want to discover 
something about the individual. So it's this kind of impossible relationship. And it's, it's, um, I think in some ways that's what sets up the success of their music is it's, it does speak so personally to people in a universal way. But the, and, and this is what Bob Dylan said in that interview, uh, that documentary about him years ago, where he was interviewed in a trailer somewhere, and he says, people come up to me and talk to me like they know me. They right. engage me like they're my friend. Right. But they don't know me. <laughs> right. I mean, and the, the thing about the Bee Gees, if you, Bee Gees is they do prove that if you never say, this is how I feel today in my art, but instead you, you couch things in a, in a broader terms that can't be pinned down, that you do touch people universally. Because no yeah. one ever listens to the, to the Bee Gees song and says, no, I don't feel that way today, so I disconnect from this song. Because they can't pin yes. down precisely what's being expressed. That's right. I just want to interject here because uh, uh, Christy um, has just written and um, brought up the point. She says, um, perhaps this is also why child stars typically become troubled adults because they become very self-conscious and cannot feel accepted as their own true self. I think that's right. They're never given a chance. I mean, it, 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 I think it's also true of children of, of addicts and alcoholics that they never got a chance to, to move through childhood into adulthood and and um, experience each of their mistakes and that sort of thing in their own way because they were trapped in a very specific role and that role had very very narrow boundaries and so they were never permitted to expand outside those boundaries and discover who they might be well this has been a really fascinating talk unfortunately Michael thank you so much thank you David uh, Great. I look forward to speaking with you again we've been okay. speaking with David Meyer, author of uh, uh, a biography on Graham Parsons and the upcoming book on coming out on Decapo Press called The Bee Gees The Biography is that right? That's right Thanks for listening to the show uh, We'll see you next time on the program Thanks again to David Everyone else be Bye. well and we'll see you next next time Just got a foolish heart